This is the Education Gadfly Show. <laughs> Darn it, this pandemic has thrown a real wrench into our yes. ability to study this. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Lizette Gonzalez-Reynolds. Lizette, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. How y'all doing? Great to have you here. Also joining us, as always, my co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure, but unusually so this week. Unusually so. David and I are actually sitting next to each other. It's crazy. We don't have masks on. Nothing. We might as well be kissing each other, David. It, what, what is it this? Feels, <laughs> it feels a little bit... Um, Risky. <laughs> it, it feels weird. Well, it helps. Think- it helps that we've both had COVID pretty recently. That does help. Yeah. yeah. So there's that. But uh, yeah. Well, hey, for those of you that somehow don't know Lizette, Lizette is the vice president of policy for Excel and Ed. Uh, she's done all kinds of cool stuff in her career, including a stint at the Texas Education Agency. Did I get that right? That's right. I always have to say it's not the Texas Department of Education. T E A. Excellent. And we are going to talk about a topic that our listeners are probably tired of me droning on about, but they're going to get to hear a different perspective on it today, and that is the College for All debate. Let's do that on Ed Reform Update. All right, so Lizette and I were both at a conference for the Pi Network, the Policy Innovators in Education Network, recently. This is the umbrella organization for Ed Reform groups all over the country, state and national and now some local ones as well. I heard Lizette say something that I thought was really powerful and eloquent, but also that contradicts my perspective quite a bit. And I thought, hey, we should have this debate. And so here we go. So Lizette, go ahead, say say what you said to the group about what you're hearing on the, the pushback to the college for all mission of education reform. So Mike, it's not necessarily kind of the nomenclature around college for all, but it's really about you know, the pathways that kids are provided in their K-12 education. And for folks that grew up a lot like me, um, that grew up, you know, on the poverty line, first generation, I mean, college just created so many opportunities for me that I never would have had available otherwise. I mean, this was in 1983, right? I graduated a long time ago from high school and the opportunities and the jobs, you know, that were back then aren't necessarily where we are today. So, and at the time, right, for me, a four-year college degree was the most critical credential for someone like me to to be able to um, have that, you know, that social and economic security that I think all kids deserve. Now, you know, I have shifted a bit, you know, I mean, I look at it more in the post-secondary, right? You know, we all know that everyone in high school has a career path, right? Um, It's just how you get there. And, you know, I do believe that technical colleges are providing some tremendous support for students to be able to attain those economic and social mobility. But I still think that for many kids of color and kids in poverty, that the opportunities are just greater for us to actually become leaders in our country. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think you said something about, look, when, when you hear people say that, well, not all kids need to go to college, that you assume they're talking about black and brown children. Correct. And that's what we saw. You know, we saw that in Texas. I mean, and again, I'm not saying it's intentional to dismiss kids of color, but it's just so much easier because, you know, there's still that deficit perspective of poor kids and black and brown kids that somehow they're broken and that they maybe learn differently or 
They're harder to teach, right? And we're no harder to teach than anyone else. It's just what are those opportunities? What are those biases that are in the schools that are preventing us from becoming on on that right track to attain that higher wage and more in-demand job? And look, I will say where I'm coming from is oftentimes when I'm thinking about the college for all, I'm not so much thinking about black and brown children. I'm thinking about the children of Trump voters who are you know, mostly white working class who a lot of polling and focus groups, it seems to indicate that sometimes when they hear the college for all talk, or at least if they hear it that way, uh, they hear it as something that we're, where we elites are looking down on them, right? Uh, and that's a big part of this populist backlash is there's this sense that in America today, even if you work hard and put food on your table, if you don't have a credential, a higher education credential, that somehow you're looked down upon. And, you know, Trump famously saying, I love the uneducated, you know, and that, that this was his base. And so there's been this, this switch where more and more politicians, especially on the right side of the aisle, but, but across the board are saying, you know what? Hey, the trades and other technical kinds of jobs and jobs, you know, the dirty jobs, as Mike Rowe would say it, those can be good jobs too. And those are contributing to our society and those people deserve dignity. And I know you believe all, all of that, right? But how do we get that message across? On the one hand, we want kids to live up to their full academic potential and kids that are out there that have the potential to go to college and succeed. We want that to happen for them. While we also don't want to send the message that for those kids that that's not their path, that somehow they're lesser than or, you know, and that's to me, maybe, maybe it's about how do we talk about this? Well, the bottom line is every student, regardless of their background or circumstance, should be educated, provided the academic skills necessary to be able to graduate from high school, prepared for a post-secondary credential path. That includes apprenticeships, it includes going to a two-year without going to, you know, having to take developmental education courses. It means going to a four-year college, whatever tier you want to call it. They need to be prepared because When you're talking about a lot of those so-called blue-collar jobs, I mean, you look at the technical manuals of plumbers or electricians, those require a very high level of reading comprehension and mathematical knowledge, right? And so to be able to say, well, you know, you don't need the academics because we're going to put you on this path, well, you're not going to be successful once you graduate from high school. You have to have those academic skills. And I think what has happened and what I was really referring to is that there are biases that start really early. And again, if you're thinking that black, brown, and poor kids are harder to teach, well, then let's make it a little easier for them. Let's not push them into like, you know, becoming proficient in algebra one. Let's just get them across the line. Let's just let them pass the barest minimum, the minimum support they need to graduate from high school. And then our job is done. We've done the job that we've done. We need to be able to ensure that 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 transition to that post-secondary is a meaningful path, and it's a path that is going to lead to an in-demand job. Again, things were a lot different from when I grew up, right? I had to advocate for myself to be in the classes with with the wealthier kids, right? But it was just easier sometimes for other kids to go, oh, well, they just think I'm going to go, I need to do this, so I'm going to do this class and not worry about it. I'm going to get out of high school and I'm going to do X, Y, Z. You can't do that anymore in this day and age. And there's no, there are no adults really thinking about each individual student and what the potential is for them to be, right? And if you provide them that academic 
foundation, then they can make those choice decisions in their 10th, 11th, and 12th grade years to really think about, okay, what do I want to do and where do I want to go next? And then thinking about some of the innovations that we can pull into the 12th grade into really getting kids to like get college credit or, you know, embark on some, on an internship or work-based learning partnership in their community to, to like get on that, on that path and know what, whether or not they like it or and, not. And, and, it, and all of that makes a ton of sense, but then you look at the reality of where we're at, right? The aspiration is right. We would all love to get to the point where any high school graduate, they can decide at 18 which path they want to go to and all of their options are still available to them. Or maybe they make that decision a little bit earlier, like you said, for their senior year. Do they focus on dual credit and AP or do they start doing something more technical? Problem is we're not getting anywhere near getting 100% of kids to that level, right? It's like maybe we're getting 50% of kids to that level, maybe. And unfortunately, we know who those kids are pretty early. Like you say, we got to be very careful about these biases, but we can look at test scores. We can look at grades. And we know certainly by, say, the end of eighth grade, uh, which kids are a long way from being at that point. And and I worry that by pretending that we're going to get the kids there anyways, these kids that are two or three grade levels behind, we end up having them go through the motions in high school of college prep. But what they really do is they, they struggle through these crappy academic courses. They often fail. Then we put them in credit recovery. Then we do dropout prevention. I mean, I, I just worry that, that none of that is a great experience for those kids. If, if we could you know, somehow have to balance the sort of aspiration with the reality and then say, well, how should those kids be spending their time? Where's the best use of their time in high school? David, j- jump in here. Our, our, our in-house I, former high school teacher. You former high schooler. I have a slightly different perspective from both of you. I, I lean Mike's way when it comes to, um, I think, honesty about college. I do think we sort of reified it or, or deified it. I don't know what the right word is, but we've, I mean, we've made it like this all-encompassing symbol of human worth. What undergraduate institution you went to, and the older I get, just the more insane it seems. And the more, yeah, I mean, borderline offensive, right? I mean, especially especially given how random college admissions are, right? I'm, I'm sort of hearkening back to my own experience, right? Which is very different from other people's experience, right? But I mean, it is true. Like, who knows why some kids get in, some don't. But, you know, it's all driven by this sense of status, in my opinion. But I, I feel like, Mike, you're making a turn here, right, that I don't necessarily agree with, right, which is, you know, college isn't working, therefore we must do something different in high school, right? And that's where I, I agree that we should do something different, some things differently in high school, but I'm not personally that convinced that we know what we're doing in high school either. Mm-hmm. You know, if college for all isn't working, um, it doesn't follow to me, right, that we can successfully train kids for lifelong careers in 11th and 12th grade, mm-hmm. right? Um, in other words, I, and I get why you want to make that turn, but me, I mean, the, the larger problem here is that we're just teaching kids things that frankly have no, you know, applicability in the real world. You know, four years of the Scarlet Letter and um, French or whatever it is. And I, I'm not even talking about low-income kids versus versus high-income kids. I'm talking about all kids here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's some sort of sequel to, to the, you know, the books about how useless college is that that is about how useless high school is. I mean, I can name on, on one hand, right? Like the, the high school courses that have actually stayed with me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I still use. And a lot of it, unfortunately, is math <laughs> um, or, or economics or something. And, and I'm not a representative American, but I mean, somehow we have to make high school relevant. We have to figure out what we actually think kids need to learn. And 
and I guess what, what I'm trying to distinguish myself from Mike is I, I think there's a very important conversation about a general high school education. And I think a lot of what everyone is reacting to is the fact that even that feels really unfocused. I just want them to step out of the high school door and have some chance of understanding a mortgage, see a payday loan lender for what they are, because we don't know where the economy is going to be. Or have a plan for the day after graduation. I mean, what are they going to wake up and do? But but, but 18-year-olds don't have plans, Mike. I mean, I was doing something (laughs) completely different at 18 than I was doing at 19 than I was doing at 23. I mean, it's... At 28 and 29, we're all doing different things. But again, what a higher education did was it helped us pivot, right? It helped us know where to go, where the knowledge, who to connect with. The one piece about a post-secondary education, particularly college, has been so critical for people that grow up with no money or grow up with aspirations for leadership is the ability to network and meet people you never would have met before. I never, my parents didn't have, you know, I, I went to school with people that could call senators and get a job. I had none of that. That wasn't even an opportunity or a possibility for someone like me had I stayed in the Rio Grande Valley and just found a job out of high school. And I absolutely agree that we are not doing a good enough job in high school, really navigating and understanding where kids want to go and where they need to be. But I think it's naive to think that anybody can just leave high school with a traditional degree and, and, and go somewhere else. There has to be a post-secondary path. And that can include apprenticeships, right? That can include paid internships. But the other piece that we also have to remember is when you think about where maybe it is functioning in a high school, right, where maybe there is these um, uh, computer science pathways and, and, and mechanical engineering, those are going to exist in the more affluent, more resourced community. And so there's so much that needs to be fixed within the system, as in the big S, but we're already going down. Well, they're not preparing kids for college. So we've got to take college off the table because they're not prepared. They're not going to be prepared for life. And we have to think about how can high school function better to support all kids so that their, their paths are to where our economy needs them to be. Um, even at Pi, um, I got this question was, you know, if you look through like what a cosmetology program in high school, for, for the most part, those kids top out at like $28,000, $30,000 a year for their lifetime. And it was like, well, what if that's what a kid wants to do? Okay, if a kid wants to do that, that's fine. But you shouldn't lessen their academic path or remove them from rigorous coursework because they've decided they want to go into hairstyling. Well, and, and maybe maybe this is it, is Lizette, is, you know, where we're talking past each other a little bit is I, I agree. Any kid that's got the academic uh, skills, the academic horsepower to make it to college uh, or post-secondary, absolutely, we should do everything we can to help them stay on that path and succeed. I'm really talking about alternatives to, say, credit recovery, you know, which is now the pathway right? or the or the alternatives to dropout prevention programs as we currently envision them, right? For the lowest performing kids. You know, for the ninth graders who are at the 10th percentile nationally or 20th percentile nationally, who are three grade levels behind in reading and writing and math, you know, that for those kids, what we've backed into with the sort of have them fail a bunch of classes and then do credit recovery, um, it's it's that that I want to push on a little bit of on, on alternatives. I also have had concerns that if, you know, if we don't carve out time in the high school calendar to let kids do real career tech stuff, uh, you know, then that's a lost opportunity. Um 
but where we agree, I think, Lizette, is that for kids who are, you know, who show up in high school and are on a path where they've got, they've got what it takes to succeed in college, we need high schools to give them everything they can to be successful. And the fact that we don't have more kids coming into ninth grade at that level, shame on us in grades K to eight. And that's, you know, where we just have so much, as you say, work to do to fix that as well. Well, and what I do agree with that you just wrote recently about, you know, the college completion piece, right? That is very critical. But, you know, I was talking to Arthur Samuels. Um, he, he was, we were fellows and he was telling me, you know, like, yeah, Mesa Charter School, you know, they're in, in New York City. You know, they are very intentional on the academic side. But when they get to the point where a kid is just struggling, 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 they start working with them to put them on the right path so that they can go into a post-secondary type of program that actually gets them on a path to a two-figure, three-figure um, out of high school. So there are leaders out there that are doing the job. It's like, how do we get the big ass system to follow and understand and remove the biases they have, particularly about poor kids, so that every child, every student has a future tied to the economic needs of the United States. Awesome. Well, that is well said. We will leave it there. And look, I think maybe we've decided we we don't disagree as much as we thought. <laughs> so we'll take on world peace next, which is oh, yeah. certainly a challenge at the moment. Hey, really appreciate it. Lizette Gonzalez Reynolds. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Again, you can find her at Excel in Ed. Uh, I look forward, boy, I, what is it? Six, six months till Jeb Fest. Uh, it'll be right around the corner. Can't wait. Yeah, we're already working on it. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. I uh, hope to have you on the show again sometime soon. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We've said it already. We're in person. Yay. Uh, oh, my gosh. And honestly, I think my glasses, I was thinking I went from a 1.5 to a 1.75 since I was last here in this podcast room. <laughs> really? <laughs> Have your glasses caught up with you? Yeah, I mean, they... it's been a couple years, it feels like, and the eyes are getting weaker. You, you, just, you just complimented me on my shoes, and it I makes know. me think you, you haven't nice. seen me below my shoulders for like two years, <laughs> right. practically, uh, on the Zoom. I, I hereby <laughs> declare this timeline normal. Yes. yes. We're back to normal. We're back to normal. Yeah. We are back to normal. Well, we're yeah. back in the uh, office one day a week here at the Thomas yes. B. Fordham Institute. The same day. <laughs> we're, patting, we're patting ourselves on the back. It's so normal. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, what, what were we ever thinking coming in every day to work? <laughs> yeah, that, that was time, insane. That timeline was weird. Like we get tired of each other, right? If I, we come every it's day. It's just this like way we so sort of much. We enjoy our colleagues. Well, we do. Bit, you know? We do. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just so much work to, to get downtown hello and, uh, i get on a train from richmond i know you're coming a longer way that was your choice as <laughs> i recall it's true, it's true. <laughs> uh well great to see you all in person uh yes. what what do you have for us all right i've got a cool study i do believe um out of harvard examines how having public school choice across a district including the centralized control enrollment system that some of these districts use affects the distribution of students across the public and private school systems. So this one's mm. different. We're actually going to look at how the system affects public school enrollment. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes place in Tulsa Public Schools. Has, well, Tulsa has 77 schools and 34,000 kids. Families can submit up to six rank choices to any of the schools in the district, including neighborhood schools, two types of magnet schools, and charter schools, 
One of the magnets is open to all, one is not, so the latter aren't included in the study. And the charter schools aren't in here either because they're not required to report data directly to the district. So that's important. Uh, if families choose not to participate in the public school choice lottery, they're assigned to their neighborhood zone school. So we're only looking at kids who participate. Overall, 44% of students in transition grades, those, you know, when you got to mm-hmm. switch schools, uh, participate. Uh, Although there's a nearly 20 percentage point difference in participation favoring white versus black students and higher income versus lower income students. Mm -hmm. Analysts leverage random variation from the lottery and the impact of winning it, meaning you get your first choice on public school enrollment. And in particular, at how the ability to afford a private school, the geographic convenience of private schools and the quality of your neighborhood school might influence behavior. They use district data from the centralized enrollment system in 2019-20 and student enrollment data from 2020-2021 from the state and district. Uh, they acknowledge the application data were pre-COVID. The lottery occurred as usual, however, but the enrollment data are during COVID. Hmm. So enrollment patterns could likely be unusual. <laughs> um, and they maybe the kids are more sensitive to getting their top choice or not. We're not sure how, how this is playing out. Key finding, students who do not get their top choice are 15 percentage points more likely to leave the public school system entirely. Mm. Not surprisingly, this effect is driven by higher income students Mm -hmm. who are 33 percentage points more likely to leave public schools if they don't get their top choice. Geographic location of the private school is not a factor. Mm. meaning there's no significant difference in public school enrollment between students who receive their top choice and those who do not, depending on how close kids live to the private schools, nor is the rating of the zone school that students have guaranteed access to. That's not a significant factor either. Then they try to use all these different measures of quality other than the letter grade assigned by the state. Makes no difference. Then I'm like, okay, what does it mean in terms of raw numbers? 81% or 1,663 kids got their top choice. 19% 19% around 400 kids didn't get their top choice. 119 didn't enroll in public school. And based on their models, they estimate that means 67 kids didn't get their top choice and were induced to leave mm-hmm. um, because of that. Uh, they also estimate that if choice participation increased by 25%, an additional 13% of higher income students would leave in the first year. Uh, the author posits that increasing participation in school choice presents a conundrum. And that it decreases the overall likelihood that any given student will get an offer at the school that they rank first, at least in a static system. We want low-income kids Mm. to have the chance to land at better schools. But if more students who can afford private school options leave, it can increase the stratification between the sectors. Final point. So policymakers have to balance efforts between access and equity. Mm. But then I looked at it and the model assumes that, you know, preferences are stable across schools. Number of seats at desired schools are fixed. Um, pool of schools participating is not changing or improving, right? But in reality, mm-hmm. all these things aren't as fixed as they are mm-hmm. in an, you know, an equation. Um, so I think the bottom line is still we need to increase more high-quality seats in mm-hmm. the schools that kids want to go to. Mm-hmm. And we need to uh, make sure kids of all races and income levels participate. Mm-hmm. So, so, Amber, help me understand. I understand how they figured out how many kids left because mm-hmm. they didn't get their first choice. But how do right. they know that more kids left because there was this choice-based system, right? Uh, they actually had, there's something, oh gosh, they had a code where they knew where the kids went on the public schools. So it wasn't an estimate, you know, in terms of 
where they were going, right? I mean, they actually knew where they were going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, no, you mean, in other words, how do well, they... Well, the counterfactual. It's a, it's a lot, if, if, this, lottery, if public school choice didn't exist in Tulsa at all, right, that those kids might have been gone anyway. Imagine there wasn't public school choice. You're affluent. You're in a neighborhood where... Uh, maybe you don't like your neighborhood school. You want to go to another school. Mm-hmm. All right. If that was never an option to begin with, maybe you would have been a private school kid from the beginning. It was only when they were like, well, we'll give this a shot. And if we happen to right. get into this school across town, then we won't have to use the private school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's, it right. feels a little bit like they're blaming choice for that. Whereas right. it could be working the other way that actually having that choice system might be keeping some some kids from going to private going school to that private. otherwise would have gone to private school. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure, honestly. That was a whole discussion that wasn't in the paper at all. And and I also would think, I would assume that some of these kids must have departed for the suburbs or for, you know, especially entering kindergartners or, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, they, they did show that in terms of the, I mean, that was where they were seeing a lot of the differences were at the kindergarten level, yeah. you know, in terms of the um, the choice, the transition, obviously, and then obviously at the pre-K yeah. level when kids are going yeah. in the system. I mean, I guess it's just to, to kind of say the, the old uh, adage that, that rich people in America have always had choice, mm-hmm. right? And and so that's the the, the counterfactual but, is that right. rich people, you know, but now we can see move, their choices. Well, right. <laughs> well, they will move to a neighborhood that where yeah. they like the schools, or mm-hmm. let's say they are living in the city. You know, they've got toddlers and preschoolers, and they're like, well, we really like living in the city. Let's see if we can get into a school we like here. If they do, they stay. If they don't, they move. You know. But anyways, that's. Yeah, I mean, it's. I am sort of shocked by the numbers, though, right? I mean, the difference between getting your first choice and your second choice was enough to convince a third of people to pay yeah. full tuition instead yeah. of nothing. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That's pretty extraordinary. It if was you ask 10 me, ten to twelve. They, they they did say yeah. it was ten to twelve thousand dollars average tuition at, at in the, the in the average private right, school. In the average yeah. private school. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a. I mean, that's a lot of money. Like for well, for saying you got you know you got and, your second and, place and choice. The, and then there is the COVID question. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that it's also, you know, I don't know at that time in Tulsa how many of the public schools were open versus the private right. schools. I mean, Oklahoma was probably more normal than uh, here in our weird coastal bubbles. But uh, yeah, that just makes it weirder because you to me because you're getting even like you're getting less for your money. Right? No, you're no, you're getting no, no. I'm assuming the private schools were certainly open. Oh, yeah. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. right. Maybe that's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that could be it. But speaking of which, look, this is a big question for education research is what is going to happen? Well, how are people going to handle this COVID stuff? In all kinds of studies. I mean, we're mm-hmm. trying to think about this first study that we're doing, right? <laughs> yes, it's yeah. like, darn it, this pandemic has thrown a real wrench into our yes, ability to study it things. Has. And it's interesting that here we go with the, with one that actually has data fresh enough where this yes. is a real issue. I mean, <laughs> I know this is yet just a small problem compared to everything else that yes. has happened with this pandemic. But it's a problem. It's true. Yeah, the uh, identification problem, Mike. Everyone's talking about it. Right? Are they? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, nobody cares. It's only a matter of time before we start using COVID as an instrument. But, yeah. All right. Well, here we go. All right. Well, interesting stuff, Amber. Not sure exactly what to make of it, but uh, but interesting nonetheless. That is all the time we've got, though, for this week. So, until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.